0: welcome back everyone to the got mental health podcast my name is rachel cove along with my co-host arthur Mogalski,
1: Rachel. thank
0: you so much and today we have the fantastic david west in the house Yeah. You guys, your minds are about to be blown. I promise. David became a registered dietitian, nutritionist, RDN in 2013 and founded Nutrition and Recovery, a group practice of RDN specializing in the treatment of eating and substance use disorders. He earned his doctor of philosophy degree in UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health in the community health sciences department with a minor in health psychology. Dr. Wiss can be <clears throat> your nutrition and health consultant, functional medicine practitioner, recovery coach, or simply provide psychoeducation related to his areas of expertise. Learn more about the intersection of nutrition and mental health at his new website, Wise Mind Nutrition, and follow him on social media at Dr. David Wiss. Welcome in the house, Dr. David well Wiss. Welcome. That's so cool. That, that doctor, you. You,
1: that, I mean, that was beautiful. That, Great job.
0: That was pretty good. Right? That was a
1: great job. You did a good that job. A Thank
0: job. you. It was a yeah. mindset. Yeah.
1: So go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. I mean, I've known David for a minute. We were talking about this before. I knew you before doctor.
0: That's true. Better guy. Mm-hmm.
1: And that that's fascinating. So I got to applaud you on that because I, I I do follow you on social and I, I, I followed your journey through that. Talk to us about that. What, what was that experience like for you?
2: I've always had a calling for academics and it's not for everyone. There's something about science that resonated with me. When I got my master's degree at Cal State Northridge, the other students did not like doing uh, literature reviews and and looking at uh, uh, data collection processes and it it made me excited. And I knew there was something there, but I knew I wasn't gonna do the PhD right away. So I started the business, I started working one-on-one with people, I built nutrition and recovery. But in my spare time, I was making PowerPoint presentations and awesome. trying to write papers to get published in journal articles. And the call was there. Yeah. And I knew that I had it in me. And um, I considered a lot of different options. I happen to live right near UCLA. Uh, awesome. They don't have a nutrition program, and I'm a nutritionist. Most people assume my doctorate is in nutrition, right. but I got a PhD in public health. And I will admit, it was a long journey, and I'm, most people would say that PhDs are, yeah. but I did go into it with some assumptions like, this will be fun, I'm good at this, right. I'm going to kick butt, I already, I'm already on the level, let's go. <laughs> and uh, it was tumultuous. Okay. I'll be honest, it was a long ride because I worked full time, right. and you're not supposed to work during a PhD program. They did not like the fact that I was working, so I almost had to keep it a secret right? Because they want you to kind of work for them. Sure. Academia has a lot of hierarchy in it. And there's a lot of feelings of, you know, you start at the bottom of the totem pole and you work right. your way up. And I came in there with a little bit of an ego and it was a problem for me. Hmm. I already had a, a point of view. I already had a business. I already had publications and I clashed with some professors. It's true. And so I ate a lot of humble pie during that process. I had to really remind myself that I was a student. I'm not there to uh, be the teacher. And it was a definite struggle for me. And I think it's fun to, to acknowledge that. Um, it's true.
1: It's true. Would you say that was the most difficult part of it? Is really being humble and kind of dropping the that ego? The work
2: wasn't hard for me.
1: Right. I'm
2: good at, like, school. Right. I'm good at, like, exams and papers. The politics was hard for me. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I That's learned cool. that, like, you know, you, you got to fit in. To the department
1: right the and politics the
2: politics and so yeah. there was times for example when um, well I'm just gonna put it all out there today yeah yeah go for go. It. That's yeah to do bring it there were times when they wanted me to be a TA and I literally uh, have a full-time job you understand yeah I can't afford to not work I didn't get financial aid the right. other the other students in my department got financial aid so I'm paying my way through the program and they want me to TA and I'm like, no, I, I have a job and I have bills to pay. And so it created friction. They're like, oh, who does this guy think he is, right. right? And then I started publishing papers on my own. And and like they're used to students being like, you know, can you help me? Can you sign off on me? Right. And I just wanted to do the things that I wanted to do. I was being a little baby, I'll admit it. Yeah. I, I came in there with some wounds. I certainly did. But the uh, uh, end result was that I ate humble pie I was able to work through the challenges and the difficulties with the faculty, and um, I finished strong. I was able to publish like 12 or 13 papers along the way. Worked full time, and I did a, a dissertation. Uh, the dissertation was tricky because I'm interested in 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 you know biological mechanisms as well as social science and the the uh, convergence of the two disciplines. I really wanted to do a big intervention study at a treatment center and revamp the food service environment and bring in nutrition counseling and change the way people eat, bring in supplements and just revolutionize a facility and see how it might improve depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, quality of life. I, of course, wanted to do neuroimaging and brain scans to look at neuroinflammation. I had all these big ideas and um, they didn't go for it, right? But why? Because in, in, in academia, There's a trade-off between, you know, safety and being progressive. Mm -hmm. And when you're a, if you're a faculty professor, you can be, you earn the right to be progressive. To do things that have never been done before. This has never been done before. So it's risky. Understand? Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, but this is what I do. Right? Like we teach nutrition to people in recovery. Right. Right? I see it happen all the time. Lives are being changed. Right. And, you know, uh, it just it just wasn't supported by enough data to get people to say, let's do this. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's a challenge for me as I've had this passion project for, you know, nutrition for mental health. And it's a burgeoning field in the UK, in Canada and in Australia. Mm-hmm. But guess what? Not too much happening here in the U.S.
0: Why right? do you think that is? Shopping. Let's talk about media
1: and advertising. I feel like like that's the main reason.
0: I am, okay, for starters, I have a child who's four, already completely addicted to sugar. Sure. I watch it daily. He doesn't even pretend he's not, he doesn't even ask for Cheerios. He goes, Mommy, can I have sugar? It's like we live in a culture, not like, we do. We live in a country that wants to get people addicted to sugar. Why do you think that is?
2: Let's get conspiracy theory. Let's do right? it. Uh, I don't care.
0: I'm pissed off about it.
2: I don't want to be one of those people that's angry at the pharmaceutical industry, Fine. right? Yeah. Uh, but there's some definite truth to the fact that the food companies and the drug companies are in cahoots, right? They're in bed with each other. If you could serve people low-quality food, get them in the healthcare system, chronic disease, they become lifetime patients, right? It's an extremely profitable way to suppress. Marginalized groups, right? I think nutrition is one of the hidden tools of oppression in our in our world right one hundred percent right if you look at prisons or you know institutional living it 's like low quality mm-hmm. food, keep people sick, and you know it 's very difficult to bypass that, even in socially advantaged families like it 's not like you 're going to be able to bypass. Uh, Hidden sugars in foods, right? Unless you become obsessed, which no one wants to do, that's a whole other disorder in itself, right? Right. So it's a really tricky conundrum. The food environment, right? It's it's arguably toxic, right? And there's a lot of things that are added to foods that are causing problems, and the solutions aren't clear, right? Individual level solutions aren't clear because you you don't want people to now. uh, so obsessed that you're reading the ingredient list of everything you're leading to restrictive eating disorders. But I think that, you know, policy level solutions are starting to look a little bit more clear. Like let's talk about big food. Let's talk about some of these uh, uh, private profits that seem to always supersede public health. Right. And so that was my PhD in public health. We don't think about people. That was the other problem I'm a clinician, right? I do one-on-one right. work with people. And when you study public health, it's more like sociology. You're not looking at people. You're studying groups, right? You're studying communities. And this was like profound for me. It was a new thing that I hadn't ever really thought about. And, and for example, you look at a neighborhood you study, like, how many parks are there in the neighborhood? Mm. What kind of stores are there in the neighborhood? And you can capture variables that you wouldn't measure at the individual level, right? You start to think, what's the, what's the level of neighborhood cohesion? Do people feel safe in their neighborhood? Do they walk? Do they share? And how does all of this stuff affect health, right? If people perceive high levels of social support in their neighborhood and it feels safe and they can go to walks and go to, you know, farmer's market, it's a very different story than when there's a couple corner stores Mm. and you don't know that you can go to the next block, Mm. right? And so studying community health and population health got really, really exciting uh, for me. But these bigger questions around food companies and drug companies, we're talking about high-level policy at the global level that seemingly feel impossible to tackle. I,
1: and I feel like there's more and more features added every day to make it even more and more difficult. And I'll give you the biggest one in the past 10 years, Uber Eats. Hmm. You don't even need to leave your home anymore, oh. and they'll deliver it to you. It's like, and I, and listen, I'm a byproduct of this crazy world too right in a sense like uh, we i catch myself order we order a lot right and it's it, just a sense of convenience because in nature we're just lazy uh, and we don't want to work hard for we're not going to go scavenging and hunting at this point That's we're right. going to try to sit in our office and get it so it's like how you know you're talking about it seemingly impossible but i'm 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 hoping that you're going to have some hope for us and what does that process look like?
2: Yeah, I think that when we start to study neuroscience and we learn that the brain starts to favor convenience, when you think about re- reward, right? right? There's the reward that you get from the food itself, right? but then there's the reward you get from putting in no work for it, right? And when you can get a high level of dopamine response for like minimal effort, the brain is going to compute that as a positive, right? And it's going to equate that with the survival-promoting process, even though... It's not actually uh, uh, necessarily helping mm-hmm. with human health, right? It's, it's... But the brain believes that it is because it's rewarding, right? It's, it... People tend to confuse pleasure with happiness. If things are easy and dopaminergic, it seems like that is something that equates to happiness, right? Can you
0: define dopaminergic?
2: Yes, there are um, reward pathways in the brain that are often m- governed by dopamine, and there's several of them. Um, we talk about the mesolimbic dopaminergic projection, right? That starts in the back of the brainstem and then projects to these other parts of the brain. There's other neurochemicals involved in addiction, like processes. We have the opioid system, the GABA system, but generally we equate the process of learning with dopamine. Once upon a time people assumed dopamine just meant pleasure, But now we know that it's the assignment of value. So when something is dopaminergic, your brain remembers it, right? Mm It's a part of the brain called the ventral striatum, which is uh, responsible largely for assigning value. We call it salience. So when something is rewarding, the brain remembers it. And it's evolutionarily supported. If you think about our ancestors foraging and hunting, if you were starving and you stumbled on a mango tree after three days of not eating, and you had seven mangoes, it would be extremely rewarding to the point where if you're ever hungry and foraging again, your brain would remember mango Mango. trees were that way.
0: Right. Do the imprints of that in the brain come from childhood? Does it start from childhood or does it keep getting, can we keep recreating new neural pathways?
2: I mean, it would be argued uh, that it starts before the generational legacy, we have data showing in utero exposure to foods and drugs are programming reward pathways of the offspring, right? One of my early papers was on rodent models, uh, maternal exposure to highly palatable foods and how what a, what a mother ate during pregnancy programmed the offspring to be more susceptible to addiction-like processes. So we have data showing that uh, uh, rats and mice that we lump together and call rodents, that are fed uh, the cafeteria diet, we call it, the Western style diet, chips, cookies, et cetera, mm-hmm. straight sugar, um, their offspring, are more likely to develop methamphetamine and cocaine addiction.
0: That is fascinating. And, and
2: that's the bigger picture of nutrition. It's not just about people, it's not just about 24 hours, it's about the food environment programming human beings to be more susceptible to addiction-like processes, right?
0: Is that because the body is already susceptible to that pattern of craving? I,
2: I, I think that, um, you know, to think about like survival, right? If, um, if, if a mother is experiencing, you know, abundance, right, during a, a pregnancy, right? And this is also shown to be true during lactation. Uh, uh, there's, there's like a, a passing along of information that we don't know fully uh, uh, enough about that will set someone up to be more addiction-like. Interestingly, and this is where it gets good, if a mother is underfed, during pregnancy and is experiencing scarcity, that can also set up the offspring to be more susceptible to addiction-like processes as well. Because they're coming into the world expecting nothing to be there. They're coming into to uh, expect scarcity, but they come into abundance. So both the overfeeding and the underfeeding can set someone up for dysregulated reward circuitry. And now if that's going on in our world today, since 1980, which is what we call like the beginning of the junk food era. And I want to be food positive and not point the finger at any particular foods and really think about the larger context of the food environment as a whole. But in that time, food became more convenient, and food became more palatable, and they invested a lot of money into research to make food more uh, rewarding, right? And so what about all the mothers that ate a lot of quote-unquote junk food during the 80s and 90s during pregnancy? And there used to be some messaging around there of like, you're pregnant, you're eating for two, right? And then there's Hmm. uh, sort of binge eating during pregnancy, and then we have babies that were born in the, in the 90s, 80s, 90s, 2000, the internet blew up, and now you have other processes that are making people susceptible. So you've got predisposition to uh, addiction like processes, you've got behavioral addictions, we've got highly palatable food, right? And then you add in now in recent years the, the, the internet and the phones, and it's just all a huge formula for an addiction crisis.
1: that that's that's hard to take on, and I'll tell you why because I find it we're it's we're not we're at this point we're being reactive to the problem we're not be it's it's almost it's like it's very difficult to be proactive at this point like how can you be since we're in this cycle that you could say in the eighties it probably even started before i mean because you're saying lack of, right? My, my family grew up in the USSR where they lacked thereof, right? And so, like, for them, finishing everything on your plate was a thing. Like, you had to, because, and you can't leave the table unless you do because they were afraid they're never going to be able to have another meal, right. right? And so this goes back so far along. So, like, I want to talk about solutions. I want to talk about solution orientation. What does that look like? Because we can go on about how grim and dim this, this whole process is, but I know that you're the doc to talk to you about this. Where do you see this going? Like, what do you see some solutions? What are you working on?
2: I like the way you think. Yeah. Let's talk about solutions, right?
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, uh, The example you gave was uh, Uber Eats, right? Right. So now everything is easy and convenient. And I think that there's a way to start learning how to pump the brakes on reward related processes. I mean, we're smartening up about technology. right? We've got the do not disturb stuff coming in. We've got a lot more controls for, for, for tech and phones that we're starting to implement. I know me, I've gone on grayscale on my phone. Mm. Every now and again, you turn off the colors and it just makes the phone more dull. Mm. I spend a day or two with a dull phone that's less stimulating, no red lights. Instagram doesn't have all the colors. So there's little hacks that we can do to slow down the over activation of the reward system. Mm-hmm. and when When it comes to food, And this is the message I'm carrying now, screaming it from the rooftop, and it's not landing well because it can't compete with convenience, which is like, let's not do convenience eating. Let's go to the grocery store. Let's have some planning and foresight with our food. Let's have a community family cooking session. Let's cook food. Let's connect to it, connect to the plants. If you go to the grocery store and you pick out a yellow bell pepper because it screamed at you from the aisle and you bonded with it and you brought it home and then you ended up slicing it up and putting it in a big stove stir fry or something, it lands on your body as something different than something that you got from an app within 12 minutes. Even if it's a similar bell pepper, I would make the argument that the process of slowing down eating, practicing mindful eating, soulful eating, pumping the brakes on all these quick processes is actually capable of rewiring our reward expectancy, slowing down the impulsive processes, teaching our systems how to slow down, breathe. Be present and i truly believe that that can't be done with everything it's not going to happen with the internet right right the internet's just going to take off and there's going to be more tech yeah. there's no way to stop that but we can do something about the food we can absolutely do something about the food we can get people going back to the farmers markets and to the stores and being able to cook things and celebrate and bring joy back into it and i think that that is the secret to the future of nutrition now people are listening and they're saying like i'm busy yo i'm not going to the grocery store i have i have two two jobs right i feed right right but if you can practice mindful eating at a bare minimum where you stop before the meal put the fork and the knife down have five cycles of breath right set an intention to have a slow meal not scroll during the time and chew your food Right, Eat slowly, put the fork and the knife down, make the meal 10 or 15 minutes rather than three or four. Right, That is actually programming your brain to receive that input at a slower rate. Right, And teaching that the process doesn't have to be how much potency can we get, how much efficiency can we get, how much bang for the buck can we get, but how can we teach our nervous system to be calm, to be in parasympathetic dominance and rest and digest so we can have a slow meal And almost bring sacred energy to it. Be grateful for the meal and start to have uh, what we call mindful meals at least once per day. If you can't do it at every meal, like have one meal per day when you do that. And eating real food in conjunction with that starts to retrain the brain that everything doesn't have to be as fast as possible.
0: And it's almost like building, it sounds to me like you're teaching people how to build a relationship to the food mm. that they're putting in their body. That it's not just this object that mm. has no life. It, it, it is something that you are putting into your vessel and it's going to give life to you. I was watching the show the other day, um, 1883. Okay. Whew, man, there was this scene, because I loved when you said bringing the sacredness mm. into the experience where um, one of the characters, uh, killed a buffalo. And when they killed the buffalo, they took the heart out and they spent time with the heart of the buffalo. Yes, And they honored the spirit of the buffalo. They honored the heart of the buffalo. And then they knew that this buffalo gave their life for me to have life. So it became this spiritual experience with what you're putting in your body. And that's what I love about what you're doing because we've become so Unconscious with our relationship to food. So it's not, so I think that in and of itself is a solution, right? To even just say, hey, I have a relationship to food. What is that? Do I just consume, consume, consume? Do I take any time with it? Do I ask myself, what is this giving me? Like, I just want off on a tangent there, right? No, no. So important.
1: <laughs> so, so there's a couple of things to this, right? I
0: have,
1: oh, there's a couple, there's a lot of things to this. Um, very fascinating stuff. So, there's a constant argument that's being made that um, time i don 't have the time right, and I feel like there's this constant fear that if i can 't fully commit i can 't even do a portion mm. right so it 's like either i 'm all in or or that, or nothing type of thing right that's so, right. so the people have who don 't have time, who have two jobs, have kids, have all these things it's like well, how am I going to go shopping right now and and look at the pepper and be like, "I love you and I want to have a relationship with right. you. How much of that is a reality as much as I agree with you 10,000%, right? Or how can we create it so that it is a feasible reality for certain people? Mm. I have a question for you because you've done studies, you've done papers. How much time would it take or is there a model that can be built out for somebody that is two job, 10 kids kind of person and then they see a foreseeable goal that it like if i can reach 6 months or if i can reach 3 months or a year whatever it is it is a reality that my process of and my relationship will change and that's a goal i can work towards mm. right but it's a reasonable goal like it's not like i got to go and every 3 meals i have to sit down and make love to my food right right, right. Is there something that's out there like that?
2: Yeah, there absolutely is hybrid models, right? Right. Where instead of ordering just straight meal delivery that's made in the plastic thing that you microwave, you order meal delivery that you got to cook a little bit, right? Or perhaps you go to the grocery store and you're buying some groceries and a lot of prepared food, right? Right. And now you're just assembling, right? There's a lot of models that we offer people to to be realistic. Sure. It's so important, right? Right. We're not... We're not chanting over hearts the way that perhaps we should if we were going to try to access the ancient wisdom that exists in in eating. Right. But people have to understand why they would be doing that in order to do that. Right. And that's where I think the value is right now. People still don't understand the why of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the message that I'm really trying to get out is like uh if 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 we can create consistency with food, mm. that can spill over into other areas of our life, right mm. sometimes like okay let's not try to change the way someone eats, uh, but let's think about when to eat. What if someone just ate like on a relatively similar schedule right and had three or four or five meals a day relatively at the same time every day for a month right right that's going to teach the the system that there's consistency. And that creates a feeling of safety, right? And people are often erratic with food, food patterns and then have erratic emotional patterns as well, right? And so I'm trying to teach people, like if you go to sleep at the same time relatively, every night you wake up at the same time, you have meals on a regular pattern, you're allowing your body to get into a homeostasis place where healing can happen. And so that's one uh, uh, reason why. Another reason why is because we're hardwired for impulsivity. And, and we like to do things without planning or foresight. And when we start to force ourselves into behaviors that have more planning and foresight, it can start to challenge some of that neural circuitry, right? So the bell pepper that you picked out with love versus the one that was delivered might not be that different biologically. But if one of them... Uh, lent themselves to this idea of like, oh, me and my wife had a quick chat this morning before I left for work about what we were going to make for dinner tonight. Hmm. And you're going to do this and I'm going to do this. I'm going to be home around 630. I'll throw these on the grill. You'll put this in the air fryer and we're going to bring it all together. There's this feeling of like, I know what's coming and I'm excited to have a meal in the home that I live in. It's
0: an experience yes i totally i as you were talking i was really thinking about how i could start changing that with my own son because he's complete food there isn't a relationship to food where it's sacred yet and i really want to change that because i'm not a good cook i mean he literally wrote on this piece of paper recently what is mommy good at cooking and and, and he wrote bread and butter <laughs> 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 but i i do think for anyone who's listening to this it's can change that immediately i just have to make it a habit and a pattern Yes. so with people's relationship to food now is it how long does it take to change one's relationship to food is it like the is it just like a habit like anything else
2: i think it's going to depend i mean i i do a lot of eating disorder treatment and care where people see me for a long period of time right it takes a lot of time and effort to unpack to land to get into that safe place where healing can can happen mm-hmm. Uh, other people respond rapidly to to change. It's just like, you know, the, the three-week or the three-month behavioral change. Um, I think it is wise, though, to be realistic and, like like we were saying, make it uh, attainable. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, if someone just said, I'm going to cook one meal per week, right? And then get past the narrative that you have, which is, I'm not a good cook, right? <laughs> we all, Like, so many people have that, right? And I I really don't want to make it seem like cooking is the only way to develop a healthy relationship to food and move past sort of this impulsive addiction like phenotype. But it is definitely one that is supported by public health research, and it is one that is declining, right, as food becomes more convenient. So I like to uh, put that out there for people that are looking for easy things to do. Get into a meal timing schedule, not rigid, like, oh, I eat at this time, but like consistent. Create consistency with food and then start doing a little more prep, a little bit more assembly and thinking about it as a spiritual process where you are connecting with source energy. Because if you think about it, food represents our most profound interaction with nature daily, right? Mm -hmm. And if you start to think about it that way and it, it adds a level of spiritual nourishment to the biological nourishment and it starts to feel exciting, to be a part of something that you are contributing to healing energy on the world, on, on planet Earth, right?
0: Wow, that's a good one. I have not yet heard that one before. So like when I, it, it connects me to nature, which infinitely connects me to my higher power, God, universe, whatever you wanna call it. That's I part. like that. That's the part. I like that a lot. Y- you mentioned eating disorders. In 13 years of working in this field, I think I have like the most compassion for people who struggle with eating disorders. I definitely have suffered with body dysmorphia and binge eating for sure. Mm. Why do you feel like compulsive eating and eating disorders is, is so prevalent right now? One thing that's
2: worth acknowledging is that I think we do a disservice when we lump all eating disorders together, Mm -hmm. right? Because most people, when they hear the term, they think relentless pursuit of thinness, anorexia nervosa, uh, purging, laxatives, and and there's other eating disorders out there as well, right? Um, Binge eating, obviously, is the new one that's increasing in its incidence and prevalence um but we have a couple others like uh, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder someone contacted me the other day to comment on pica where people are eating like things that are not edible uh so there's a whole class classification of uh, unspecified other specified eating disorders but um i think most people would point to the you know quote unquote obesity epidemic as a driver of diet culture and that there is an obsession with Uh, 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 bodies, and there's a lot of social comparison that's been heightened through social media. These are social factors. There's a lot of research on genetic vulnerability to eating disorders. There's uh, microbiome research related to anorexia nervosa, perhaps the bacteria that live inside of our guts are contributing to hunger, satiety, et cetera. So there's there's a lot of biology, there's a lot of psychology, and there's a lot of social environmental factors, right? And what's so interesting, and this is what I did in in, in, in school studying public health, is like, let's bring all those things together. There's people that are doing genetic and neuroscience research and thinking about invisible invisible uh, factors like, like bacteria. And there's people that are looking at the psychological factors like weight stigma, dietary restraint, right? The experience of living in a body that doesn't feel like home. And then you get these sort of larger uh, social justice related issues as well. I think if we were to bring it back to our previous... Uh, conversation about increased susceptibility to addiction-like behaviors, and then you mix in the increased susceptibility to stress, trauma, and adversity, and then you mix in, <laughs> right, uh, diet culture and this thin ideal that's been re- revered for, for many years now, which the narrative is certainly changing. Mm-hmm. In recent times, there's a huge shift towards people understanding that all bodies are good bodies, and it's uh, 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 an important conversation that I think uh, needs to be had and continue to be had. But the uh, uh, eating disorder thing has definitely grown since the uh, pandemic. The, mm-hmm. the data show that like with COVID lockdowns, you know, if if you're in the industry, you know, like a lot of the facilities have waiting lists, people can't get in. And, um, you know, uh, there have been some people that have linked that to, you know, exposure to, you know, TikTok. You can see more about what people eat in a day. Um, You know, you can literally there's people that didn't have maybe uh, disordered eating, had some vulnerability or susceptibility, started following some diet stuff and now their algorithm is pumped with it. And now, you know, their parents are looking for treatment. Um, That's, you know, one common explanation. The addiction like eating leading to binge eating disorder is definitely another one. That one doesn't seem to be as well uh, accepted. Uh, because food addiction is very controversial, it does seem to have a lot of debate around it. Probably not so much the problem of it, but as you were pointing to earlier, like, okay, what's the solution? Like mm-hmm. that's not clear. It's not clear mm-hmm.
0: what and to do about that. And it's hard because I think with um food addiction and sex addiction, right. people are gonna have sex, people need to eat. That's right. So they're two behaviors that you might have developed an addiction to, but now you have to change the relationship to it. And so it's difficult. And, I, and that's why I have so much compassion because those two addictions, it's like you have to, you have to completely relearn your relationship to this thing.
2: We're changing the, the terminology around food addiction to specify ultra-processed food addiction, right? Mm. Because then you're not just saying banana and almonds have addiction-like processes. You're looking at food that's been stripped of its fiber, added sugar, salts, fats, basically engineered for profit, right? Mm. Corporate food, as some people would call it. And so discerning between those can be helpful. And I'm sure there's experts who have discerned between romantic sex and other uh, f- forms of sex as well so sometimes the nomenclature is very helpful in pushing uh, a discussion forward
1: yeah I, I think i think from a branding standpoint i mean when you talk about eating disorders like automatically you're like oh my god that person is an eating disorder that's scary like i can't imagine you know it's like i feel like it needs to be lightened somehow some way where people also start feeling more comfortable also exploring you know
2: So we use the term disordered eating, right? Which isn't a clinically significant eating disorder, but it's disordered eating, and I oftentimes say disordered eating secondary to substance use disorder, Mm -hmm. right? Secondary to, you know, depressive symptoms, right? Sometimes people get on medications that change their uh, relationship to food change their body size and the experience they have living in their body. Mm. And so there's a lot of disordered eating that isn't primary that I think people are afraid to seek help for as you said. It's like, well, I don't have I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I'm night eating, I feel uncomfortable, I skip breakfast, I'm using caffeine instead of food and yada yada. And there's a lot of room for people to come out and say, I I would like a better relationship with food and a better relationship with my body. I don't have an eating disorder, but I wanna improve my mental health. Mm. Show me how to do that, right?
0: So have you seen a distinct correlation between the food we put in our body and the emotional responses we have?
2: So that's the big topic. And
0: again, uh, not
2: big in the US, big in these other countries is the link between nutrition and depression, right? Uh, which is, you know, uh, a a mood disorder. Um, There's been a lot of different studies looking at anxiety and ADHD, but the one that I've become most interested in is depressive symptoms. Originally, there was a bunch of like associational studies showing like people that eat uh, uh, low fiber, Uh, more quote unquote processed food have higher levels of depressive symptoms and people that eat more along the lines of Mediterranean style, higher fiber, better fats have less depressive symptoms. And then they started doing longitudinal studies where they followed people over time and showed that people who eat more fast food, processed food are more likely to develop depression. And people that move toward whole food, higher fiber, are, 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 are decreasing, and then, after you have associational studies, you do longitudinal studies and then we do randomized controlled trials and to date there 's been seven randomized controlled trials that have shown dietary interventions, and these are dietary interventions that are not focused on weight or weight reduction. Dietary counseling, food counseling in seven out of seven randomized controlled trials have significantly decreased depressive symptoms and this is the real conversation that I'm trying to push forward that nutrition just isn't about eating disorders it isn't about weight it isn't just about um, impulsivity or appearance or some of that real kind of vain or shallow stuff which a lot of people associated with they think numbers they think abs they think muscles nutrition is about mental health Mm -hmm. and that's the uh, the title of the big journal article that came out it says you know mental health is every dietitian's business Right. And so Mm -hmm. my career thus far has been focused on uh, nutrition for eating disorders and substance use disorders. And now, you know, I've made a transition to looking at how we can message nutrition for depression, anxiety and trauma, as well as ADHD.
0: I think it's exciting as hell, because I think as someone who dealt with depression a lot, I really don't deal with it anymore. Honestly, maybe here and there in the last few years, whatever. But I think when you're experiencing depression, there's this level of feeling stuck. I'm, I'm powerless. Nothing's going to get me out of this. So when I have something that says, wait a minute, if I slightly change how I eat a little bit, slightly develop awareness on what I'm putting in my body, I develop some power in this way and I develop some control in this area. And that that might actually get me to move out of bed a little bit because I get to have some control. On how I feel. So I think that's exciting. Yes. With a country that we are, like so many people suffer with depression, here's a little shift that you can make to change that for yourself.
2: And we've mapped out the biology a little bit. You know, there's a lot of people that don't respond well to SSRIs. I think the assumption once upon a time was that depression was you know, mostly related to serotonin function in the brain. And and so, so many people have gone on those medications and not had good outcomes. So it lent itself to this question, like, what are some of these other depression phenotypes? And it turns out that there's a strong correlation between inflammation and depression. So it lends itself to this question, if we can use nutrition and focus on gut health to reduce inflammation that starts in the gut, can we reduce inflammation in the periphery and essentially, crossing the blood brain barrier, which is what we call neuroinflammation. So, by using nutrition, gut focused, whole food, uh, very deliberate types of fats and fibers and things that we're not gonna get into, um, we can decrease uh, uh, inflammation in the gut, uh, help repair the intestinal barrier, and give the immune system a break. So it stops sending signals that are circulating in the body that, you know, your immune system can now focus on other things. And we have data to show that uh, inflammatory uh, cytokines particularly can cross the blood-brain barrier and lead to neuroinflammation in places like the amygdala, where we have uh, uh, cravings, anxiety, depression, etc. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's
1: amazing. I want to kind of wrap this up. What are you working on now? What's the next project? Obviously, you have nutrition and recovery. Is there anything else you want to talk about that you're really excited about? I'm
2: really excited. I spent the last year and a half building Uh,
1: a new program. It's called Wise Mind Nutrition. And I'm
2: going to deliver nutrition education and treatment through an app. So I've been able to use my uh, PhD coding skills to take it to the next level. It's been an incredible project. And, you know, there's a a free version that's coming first and foremost. And this is a place where someone could come in and uh, get a few modules and learn about how to think about food. So when we say nutrition for mental health, there's a lot of biology involved. We're talking about Um, types of fats, micronutrients, fiber, microbiome, there's biology, but there's also the psychology, how we think about food, right? Mm -hmm. If people have been led astray and thinking about things in a wrong way, it's going to affect their ability to make sustainable behavior change. So it's about reorganizing people's cognitive efforts with respect to food and eating behavior. And it's also about offering people things to consider. And there's a place where you could come in and and log your food. And one of the biggest things that I've set forth to do is teach nutrition in a way that's deliberate and intentional, but have no risk for triggering any kind of disordered eating, right? That's the hard part. You wanna teach people about anti-inflammatory eating without giving rigid rules that someone could take too far, right? So it's all packaged as this big hug with guiding principles rather than this is the new nutritional truth, right? And that has a lot of intentional energy into it. And the other thing that I'm setting out to do is to remove the quantitative aspects from nutrition. I think most people use apps to look at calories in a day, macronutrient distributions, right? Think about like this big math problem. And so I'm kind of... uh, calling out math-centric approaches to nutrition and saying, let's not do quantity. Let's start focusing on quality, right? Mm -hmm. And so people can log, you know, what food groups they ate as opposed to how many calories they ate. Instead of counting calories, maybe they start counting colors, right? And start thinking about how hungry am I? How full am I? Starting to trust internal cues, right? Starting to think about a lot of other things and bringing in contemplative practices like we talked about mindful, soulful (laughs) eating and then doing a nightly review. The way a lot of people do in recovery, like, you know, what are some of my victories today? Did I drink the water that I intended to drink, right? What could I have done better, right? So people get a chance to look at their uh, uh, food on a daily basis, reflect, and grow. And it's all food positive. There's nothing punitive about it. And it's been a really uh, awesome journey putting all this information together and packaging it in an app. Mm. The, uh, 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 the, The larger version... Uh, involves 30-day program where people are going to be way more involved Mm. with the modules and actually get assignments right so instead of me telling them this is your assignment it has a choose your own adventure component built in and the most exciting part about it is that at baseline i'm collecting information about depressive symptoms anxiety adhd eating disorders food addiction and the data that i collect at the beginning informs some of the treatment trajectories so someone could come in with you know everyone's different right so it's not just a generic program or a master class this is a place where you could come in it's going to be a like a lengthy intake process you're going to fill out a lot of validated assessment tools but I'll, I'll be able to learn everything I can about someone and be able to message to them a little bit more specifically, right? Like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is important for you. This is what the data says. I'm going to probably not use the data language. I'm trying to learn how to not talk scientifically. <laughs> That's the big pr- the challenge with the app. It's like, yeah. okay, this isn't a PhD uh, a program, right? Yeah. These are human beings.
0: And I heard they teach that. that in PhD programs, that they have to teach people how to talk to humans in a non-scientific way. Yeah. I'm going to get there. <laughs> I'm working on it. I promise.
1: I love how you created your treatment program in an app. That's it. And you pretty much told those professors I was going to do it anyways. That's and it. and so here we go. There it is. I love it. We have, we have, so first we love, I love it. So I, when, where can people find when this app is coming out? Is there a website they can yeah. follow? If
2: you go to wisemindnutrition.com, okay. I've got a bunch of blogs up there that are just looking at, all things intersection, nutrition and mental health. Okay. And there's a newsletter sign up. As anyone who signs up, as soon as uh, the app is ready for download, they're going to get that email. And so here's the link download the app and it's free. Come play with it. See if you like the vibe. Uh, we also have an Instagram at WiseMindNutrition. Uh, my social media handle is Dr. David Wiss uh, at um, Instagram, TikTok, a uh, little bit of Twitter. Um, but I love engaging with people, meeting new friends, and I'm really excited about uh, Wise Mind Nutrition. There's also a YouTube for Wise Mind Nutrition. Uh, we're doing all the things, trying to put out intelligent content and really push forward this conversation of nutrition for mental health.
1: Well, you know, you got two people that are going to help promote it. So I'm you know. so
0: excited. Yes. I really am because. Even just in this hour conversation, because I thought I'm so passionate about so many different subjects related to mental health. And my my the extremist in me is like, I got to go into Washington and I got to change policies and I got to like run for president and do all this shit to change what's going on in our society. But really, it's one person. Like if I if you just reach one person today, that parent could be changing their child's life for the rest of their life. So it could just be this is how we do it. You know, this is how we it's like we have the power of podcasts right now. Let YouTube, TikTok. The so you, and and you could impact teenagers more often on TikTok than anything else and and they need help. <laughs> they need a lot of help right now. <laughs> So I'm very impressed. I'm very excited about what you're doing. Yes. I love it. So thank you.
1: So we have we have one question that we ask everybody that comes on board here. If you took the knowledge you have now and you go back 15, 20, 30 years to the David of then, what advice would you give yourself? Learn how to code. Learn how to code. Best answer ever. That was good. Program.
0: Just
2: program and code and you're
0: going to
2: win. All of our... <laughs>
0: i love all of our answers have been you're gonna be okay i love you you're like motherfucker just learn how to code code. that
1: was a great answer david thank you so much thank you appreciate you coming out (laughs) and your and your patience earlier so thank you man very much pleasure yeah
0: thank you you want to uh,
1: wrap it up? No, 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 no. Go ahead.
0: Uh, and thank <laughs> you again, everyone, for your support with Got Mental Health podcast. We really, really appreciate it. If you do not already, please follow us, subscribe, and rate. It really helps our show. And we, again, appreciate all of your support. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.
1: Bye.